0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, August 22nd, 2020. Right now it is Wednesday morning, August 19th, and once again, I have TruthFids here with me, and we are going to discuss the next several points of his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part four of this series and and the time is just flying. Hello, TruthFids. Thank you for being here.
1: Hey Bill, thanks for having me. Yeah, like we we managed to get through the first ten finally. So uh yeah, that's great. Um there were just a few points uh I forgot to mention in regards to the whole Adam is ruddy. And it was mostly to address, you know, the criticism and how they tried to chip away and undermine that. And one of those is the verse on Moses that when Yahweh said, you know, go to your people to to prove that you are sent by Yahweh. uh, One of them was that he would throw the rod on the floor and it would turn into a snake. And the other one was he would put his hand away, bring it back, and it would be white with leprosy. And uh, certain groups say, aha, see, because his hand turned white, he couldn't have already been white. He couldn't have been a white man. He must have been black for his hand to have turned white. And and that's not not true at all, because we aren't described as white. We're described as ruddy, that we have, uh, as you described Pink, red blood undertones in our skin and and all you have to do is um, just get a white notepad or a white kitchen roll or white toilet paper you know anything that's white put your hand on top and and you can clearly see a complete difference in the color we're more like a pinkish red color and if your hand went that color there's something seriously wrong uh, and leprosy a disease that, that would describe it perfectly right Bill?
0: Well well absolutely and and it it leprosy was said to be like white patches on the skin or, or um white boils or or whatever are described in Leviticus but that doesn't mean that the skin isn't white that's ridiculous the, the As we know, white skin, white skin is ruddy skin, or it could be tanned, or it could be bronze, and, and generally we are called white people for that reason, as opposed to the other races. When a Negro, and, and I've seen suntanned Negroes, their skin gets notably blacker it doesn't turn bronze it gets blacker when when they have when they have um very much exposure to the sun negroes that don't have exposure to the sun or or the american negroes are all of mixed race they practically all have white blood in them or jewish blood predominantly but which um they, they aren't the same race that came from Africa any longer because they're all mixed. And some of them have very light skin because of that mixture. So we, we have um, old words for that, octoroon and quadroon, that have fallen out of favor. And, and, and after the um, reconstruction period, you could probably never tell anyway so who was an octoroon and who was a quadroon? those words fell out of favor they're no longer used they're considered archaic but a light-skinned negro is basically a a a negro of mixed race go to africa and and the only light-skinned negroes are are up around the arab portions of africa and in areas where they mix with whites (laughs) there's no such thing so To be ruddy, and like I discussed, um, we discussed it last week, how um, ruddy was a white construct that the term really can't exist outside of the framework of a white race. And to be black or to be blue in the sense of being in mourning or or being sad, they are white constructs that, that make... No sense at all in, in the framework of other races, none whatsoever. So, so we've always used those terms to describe other white people and, and their appearances or emotions on the scale of being white. I mean, to be ruddy, you have to be white in the first place, as we know white people. So to wax pale... People, white people are said to wax pale when, when they're shocked or when they're frightened because the blood runs from their face and they're no longer ruddy, that their ruddiness diminishes and, and they look more white, more like that sheet of paper. And, and that's a literary device for, for and ever since the time of the Old Testament the the a, a hebrew equivalent of the phrase to wax pale it it appears in isaiah chapter 29 and and it says um in verse 22 therefore thus saith the lord who redeemed abraham concerning the house of jacob jacob shall not now be ashamed neither shall his face now wax pale. In other words, Jacob will not be frightened any longer upon his redemption. So that proves that Jacob and the Israelites were white because only white people can wax pale when they're frightened. Negroes do not become white when they're frightened other races don't be even arabs don't become white when they are frightened so it, it's ac- actually quite ridiculous to think that any of these descriptions can fit other races
1: yeah and uh, also you know what what you said about they had names for different levels of mixture it shows you that um, you know when you ever see a picture of a photo of some of those sub-Saharan Africans—they're so dark you can't actually see their face. It's just this black, it's just this black circle, and you can't even make out eyes or nose. They're so dark. And then obviously that's the original ones who came over to America or wherever. They must have looked at them and and saw that, and then saw that there are lighter ones because they've been intermixed with Jews or whatever slave traders, and then whiter and whiter, and they could clearly tell the differences, Uh, but that's all been lost. People just assume, uh, what's it called, African-Americans, that they are black, but they're not, as you said. They're slightly intermixed. And um, I just wanted to quickly get into the whole Jacob Esau thing. Um, uh, Unfortunately, some of these uh, black Hebrews, they say that um, Jacob was a black man and that Esau was an albino, an albino, a, a white, ruddy, person and that's the race of the white man and and it's just so ridiculous and the irony is that the negroes are actually because they have part jew jewish blood in them because when the slave traders brought them over they were so stupid they couldn't sell them as you know good slaves slaves so they into with them into bread and that produced a more intelligent slave so they actually have the blood of Esau with them. They accuse us of being Esau, but they are actually Edomites themselves. That's the irony, right?
0: Well, well right, absolutely. And, and the, the idea that Esau was an albino, so that's where whites came from, is patently ridiculous. And, and that's because, first, there are African albinos that have, um, they don't have white skin. They have very, very, very light skin compared to other africans and and they usually have um because of the lack of pigment in their hair. it's not totally white it It's like a light orange color, perhaps burnt orange or something like that what well they that they often I believe have pink eyes and and there's other features that don't have any um, pigmentation or or a serious lack of pigmentation compared to the same features on the the normal-looking African. But these albinos don't necessarily have albino children when they mate with another Negro. So if Esau was peculiar... Who would Esau mate with but other Negroes? I, I mean, if all the people of the Middle East were Negroes, it, it's absurd that a race of white people with features that are markedly white and not Negro, because the the skull, the, the shape of the skull and the features of the face in an albino Negro are still black. It's still The albino Negro, we could still tell that it's an African by race, simply by looking at the facial features. So how did Esau's facial features transmogrify into those of a modern European, simply because he was an albino? Now, when black albinos have children with other blacks, only Only on occasion are those children albinos because the albino genes are recessive. The children aren't albinos for the most part. They're black. So a white race cannot be born from one or even several instances of albinism in a dark race. It doesn't happen. It's absurd. It's basically a... Childish theory. You, some Jew must have concocted that one. It's childish. On the other hand, th- there, are, um, there are claims that Noah, and, and I wanted to mention this, I think we both did, wanted to mention this last week, and it kind of slipped past and it never got mentioned. That Noah was so white, he was described as being so white because he was an albino. And that's just an assumption. The descriptions of Noah in the Enoch literature and the Genesis Apocryphon are not necessarily original to Noah's time. At most, they reflect, as I said last week, they reflect what certain ancient writers from the time of Christ or earlier had thought about the phrase that Noah was perfect in his generations, that Noah was perfectly white because the Adamic race was white. There's no proof that Noah was an albino, and there is no necessity to believe that. And lastly, what is a white albino? I haven't seen a white albino ever. That There are people... There were these, um, in modern Europe, there are these um, epidermatologists, um, skin doctors, whatever, that have identified white albinism. When you look at white albinism, these people are just toe heads whose hair never got darker. that They just have platinum blonde hair and pale skin. But that same pale skin is characteristic of a lot of Europeans who don't have platinum blonde hair. And their eye color is the same as the other Europeans. The, The eye color is the same as the other people from their tribe or family or nation. And they're ruddy and they have pink lips. They are not true albinos like we see albinism in the other races. So I think that's all a ploy to identify people with platinum blonde hair and and, and fair skin as being albinos is a ploy.
1: Yeah, that's just a lot of the variety we have in, in our race, right? We have so many different colors of hairs and, and eyes and so much variety that, um, you know, you will get a certain portion that have this platinum blonde hair. I've even seen... Um, you know, many color, different types of red hair. You have this bright, uh, it's hard to describe, it's like this bright orange, and, and it's really rare, as, as most just have like a reddish or a darkest orange. But I mean, you, you know, the Jews are just, it's just another trick by the Jews to um, claim that platinum blonde is albino, right?
0: Right, and, and this, that these traits in whites that they claim are albinism, it, it's not, and they admit, it's not the same type of albinism that creates albinos that, that, are seen, that is seen in other races. It's certainly not. It's ridiculous. It, it's, the claims are ridiculous. So it, it's, um, it would be ridiculous to consider Noah an albino, unless you're a Negro. Yeah. <laughs> unless you're a negro and insist on believing noah was black but if noah was black we wouldn't have any
1: white people today yeah exactly they probably claim that uh jpef was an albino and that all his descendants were albinos and that's where we come from. you know you know they have to come up with all these twisting all these theories to try and reason with how that um the israelites were black right
0: yeah, right. I mean, twisting all these theories or, or even how the Israelites were Arabs, that they'd have to twist all these theories and, and they're all in plain denial of the scripture.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What? All right. So should we um go on to the next point then? Well, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so this was I mean, we already briefly mentioned that Paul's letters were to Europeans and European only. But if you just look at the, the places, you're probably going to have no idea where they are. But but. These were actually real places that existed. Like if you just mentioned to your average person uh, Ephesians, Corinthians, Colossians, uh, Thessalonians, <laughs> sorry, I thought I was going to mispronounce that. P- people can have no idea where these places are. And even like the uh, epistles to Timothy and Titus, they can try and claim, oh, that, that was uh, an epistle um, to India or that was down in Africa. But you can re- very clearly identify these locations, what type of ethnicity, what groups of people lived there, and, and you can realize that these were white Israelites, and that Paul only went to white Israelites. There may have been, as we already said, a few Jepephites here, or a few other of the Shemite tribes, but generally, for the most part, these populations were Israelites, and that was the purpose of Paul's mission, right to head out into Europe and begin spreading the gospel to the Lost Tribes of Israel.
0: Well, well, right, and and we can actually prove that entire point. And let me say that, okay, let's start from from the top. There were eight audiences for Paul's epistles, only eight. And he had 14 epistles, but four of those epistles were written to individuals, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. That leaves 10 epistles, right? Of those 10, two were written to the Corinthians and two to the Thessalonians. So that leaves eight audiences for Paul's epistles. Now, the audiences that were in Europe were the Romans, the churches of Rome in Italy. The Corinthians... Corinth was on the northern part of the Peloponnesus, near the Isthmus, which connects it, the Peloponnese, or sometimes called Peloponnesus. It, it's a large island, and that's where Sparta was. That, that was the home of the Lacedaemonians, the ancient Spartans. The Danans first settled there. As they escaped from Egypt at the time of Moses in the Exodus, a a significant portion of the tribe of Dan went to the Peloponnesus instead of going with Moses. So, Or or perhaps had already gone to the Peloponnesus. And and those stories are actually in the, the ancient Greek poetry. So... We have the Peloponnesus connects to the mainland by a narrow strip of land called the Isthmus, and that is where Corinth was. It it was um, far to the north of Sparta. And then we have the Philippians, so Rome and Corinth, and then Philippi. Philippi was in northern Greece off the north coast of the Aegean Sea east of Thessalonica, And next we have the Thessalonians. Paul wrote two epistles to them. And Thessalonica was in the northernmost part of Greece on the northwest shore of the Aegean Sea. So his next um, audiences, the the set of audiences in Asia Minor rather than in continental Europe are, are Galatia and the Galatians were Celts who came down from Europe and set and we'll discuss them a little later on, and, and settled in um north-central Anatolia, on, on the western half, more than the eastern, but sort of central inland. And and then the Ephesians, Ephesus was a Greek city in southwest Anatolia and in Paul's time Ephesus was a great and notable city it was the capital of Roman Asia the province of Roman Asia which was um, most of the western half of modern-day Turkey not all of it but most of it and aside from the Galatians and the Ephesians Paul wrote to the Colossians and that's in Southwest Anatolia, in the interior, near to Galatia. So they were the audiences for Paul's epistles besides the Hebrews. And, and I will discuss them a little further on. In fact, I thought I had the discussion sooner. Well, well anyway... In the book of Acts, Paul, and and I do believe the epistle to the Hebrews was written by Paul of Tarsus. There's a lot of evidence for that. And let me search my notes here real quick. I don't always write my notes in the same order. Yes, I'm going to discuss Hebrews here. But first I want to take a digression. The, the um, Lycaonians, Paul went to Lycaonia in... Acts chapter 14, and the Athenians. Paul addressed the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. And the Lycaonians, it's, it's obscure what their original race or tribe was. Because Lycaonia is a Greek geographical designation for people that were not Greek. And they could have been Lydian or they could have been Phrygian. But when Paul addressed the Lycaonians in Acts chapter 14, he spoke to them nothing of Jesus, not a word. Nothing of redemption or reconciliation or sonship or adoption or the law or the commandments of Christ. Nothing that he would have spoke to Israelites about. But he did speak to them of, about the creation of God and things in relation to that creation and, and the fact that there was only one true God. And it was the same with the Athenians when he addressed the Athenians. He spoke to them in terms of what, what I consider Genesis chapter 3, the promise to the Adamic race of resurrection to er- everlasting life the first promises genesis chapter 3 deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 8 when god separated the sons of adam um things like that and paul actually cited deuteronomy 32 8 in his address to the athenians so he never spoke to them about christ or redemption or any of the things that are peculiar to the relationship which yahweh god has uh, with the children of Israel and once we realize that that's because the Athenians are Ionian Greeks and they are from Javan in Genesis chapter 10 Javan was a son of Japheth and that's from where the Athenians descended and that the Lycaonians were phrygians or lydians they they were white adamic people but they were not of the children of israel once we make that realization we can see that difference very markedly in the words of paul of tarsus that's why he did not speak to the athenians about jesus in acts chapter 17 or about the new covenant because the new covenant wasn't for them but he did speak to them about resurrection of the dead and that's because the athenians like the entire rest of the adamic race do have a part in the first promise of everlasting life made to adam in genesis chapter 3. they are included in that because the promises of god cannot fail in chapter 15 of romans especially But he also says things elsewhere in his other epistles. In chapter 15 of Romans, Paul spoke of his travels and his ministry. And he was always pushing towards the north and west of Palestine. Always. So he never sought to preach anywhere else except for Jerusalem and to the north and west of Palestine. That's where Paul's entire focus was. Paul's epistle to the Hebrews is named, has that name, and and it's not necessarily original. It's because early church writers understood he was addressing Hebrews. It has that name because it certainly was addressed to Israelites who were still practicing what we call today Judaism, and it was written as a defense after his arrest while he was imprisoned in Caesarea. And we know this. This becomes evident comparing the circumstances in the book of Acts to Paul's statements concerning Timothy further on in the epistle to the Hebrews, as it is clear that Timothy was not sent to Rome in bonds, which Paul and another of his companions, Aristarchus, were sent to Roman bonds. And there's reasons for that because they were Roman citizens and Timothy very likely was not. And Paul declared that Timothy had been released in, I believe it's chapter 13 of Hebrews. So Timothy must have been released before Paul was sent to Rome. When Paul arrives in Rome, he's writing epistles to Timothy. Timothy is not with him. So ostensibly, Timothy and Aristarchus, and perhaps others who were not mentioned in the epistles, were arrested in the temple along with Paul. And over two years had passed before Paul was sent to Rome with Aristarchus, and Luke also went with them, but Luke wasn't under arrest. And Timothy did not go to Rome in chains with Paul. So Timothy must have been released in Caesarea. So all this shows that Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea for two years, as the book of Acts says, and during that two-year period, he wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, in Romans chapter 9, we see which Hebrews he wrote the epistles to, because in Romans chapter 9, he makes a prayer for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Who are Israelites? And then he explains that not all of them in Israel are of Israel. And he goes on to compare Jacob and Esau because the modern Jews descend from those Edomites who rejected Christ, while Paul was only praying for Israelites, his kinsmen according to the flesh, that they would accept Christ. Otherwise as he wrote in Romans chapter 16, Paul knew that the Romans were going to destroy Jerusalem. Paul told the Romans that he was writing to that God would crush Satan under their feet shortly. And that was fulfilled 12 years after he wrote his epistle when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. So that's a whole nother digression that I won't get into. But that's the entire scope of Paul's epistles, 14 epistles. That's all we have surviving. There are two epistles that we know are missing. Those two epistles that we know are missing, because they're mentioned in Paul's 14 epistles, are another epistle to the Corinthians, which should have been the very first, and we don't have that. It's mentioned in the epistle we know is 1 Corinthians, but we don't have it. So the epistle we know is 1 Corinthians should really be 2 Corinthians. And the epistle we know is 2 Corinthians should really be 3rd. But we don't have the first one. And an epistle to the Laodiceans in Anatolia is missing. And it's mentioned in the epistle to the Colossians. And Colossae was very close to... Laodicea, that there might have been 20 or 30 miles between them. I don't really remember offhand, but they're very close. So we have of Paul's eight audiences for his epistles. Four of them are on the European continent. Three of them are in what we call Asia Minor, or the western part of modern Turkey, which was inhabited by... Greeks and Celts, basically. And one of them are to the Hebrew Israelites that were still um, practicing what we call Judaism in ancient Palestine. That's the audiences for Paul's epistles. There's no epistle to Hutus, Tutsis, Chinamen. There's no epistle to the Arabs, Why would Paul write an epistle to the Arabs? There is none. He never tried. He never preached to Arabs. Arabia was just across the Jordan River from Israel. Paul passed through it at diverse times. He went there after he had his epiphany on the road to Damascus. But he never preached to Arabs.
1: Right. And uh, also, just quickly, as he said, um, not all Israel is Israel. This must mean that they look similar, that these Edomites who were in Jerusalem, they must have looked very much like the people, um, you know, the Romans, the Greeks, you know, the whites. It, it clearly this exactly explains the situation today, right? When you just look at any government and you think, look at that big hook nose, you know, he looks white, but no, there's something wrong, something quite not quite sorry quite not white about him it it very clearly describes whites and mixed Jews it's exactly what we have the situation today there's nothing about uh, Arabs or blacks because that hadn't happened yet we hadn't sent out to those locations and brought them into our countries back then
0: well right There, there are a few um, that there are a few examples in Roman art of people that appeared to be Arab who were um, merchants or slaves from Egypt. But they were not stereotypical. Those people were exceptions in the ancient world. Most of the Roman art depicts people that are entirely white, In chapter 15 and among the other places where either the book of Acts or Paul's epistles indicate that he preached, but where there are no surviving epistles, besides the Laodiceans and the Athenians, Paul preached in Tarsus and in Antioch. Now, Tarsus was in Cilicia. In Cilicia was a was a ancient Phoenician settlement in the southeast quadrant of modern Turkey, bordering on Syria. So, bordering on modern Syria. So Paul spoke in and Antioch is in northern Syria, on the western portion of northern Syria, close to Cilicia. So. Paul spoke in Tarsus. He preached in Antioch and the vicinities of those regions. And on foot, he went through Cappadocia and Lycaonia and Roman Asia, Galatia and Roman Asia, as far as Miletus on the far Southwestern coast of Anatolia. And he made that, that, that journey on foot on at least a couple of occasions. In, Romans, in his epistle to the Romans, chapter 15, Paul explained that he went through Macedonia, which was in in the far north of Greece, as far as Illyria. And Illyria and Macedonia were to the north of ancient Greece. And they roughly, Illyria roughly corresponds to modern day Albania on the north easternmost shore of the Aegean sea and one other place that paul said that he had hoped to reach was spain iberia ancient iberia but call you paul evidently used the roman term for it because he was writing to romans in his epistle to the romans and he called it spain and while there are some medieval tales claiming that he reached iberia and even britain I don't accept those tales. They are certainly not true. I have to reject them. But Paul hoped to reach at least as far as Spain, and he expressed that hope, but he was never released from prison in Rome. He was executed instead. I don't know if you have anything to respond or add to that.
1: Um, No, not really. I was just going to say that also you could link, well, we was going to go over that later, that some of his these ministries that he got got going that even the other apostles uh began to write letters to them and they were clearly although it's not you know absolutely clear that they mention uh the location you can clearly see that it's related to these european places um so so yeah but if you want to go into the seven churches of revelation first that's fine
0: well well i could we, we could sort of reverse the order right um the original order that we planned. That's okay. We don't have to um, keep this in, in, in the order in which you first passed me the list. Peter and John. The fact that the epistles of Peter and John were to churches that Paul had founded or that um, disciples of Paul had founded, fellow workers, I should call them, because Paul considered them all to be disciples of Christ. We do not know the recipients of the epistles of John as they are um, unnamed or not remembered by history. John's third epistle was written to Gaius. We don't know who that guy is, who or where he was, except for the circumstances. And that's because we can rest assured from the language of the epistles of John, that they were written to local Christians. And we know from many sources, early Christian sources, that John was in Ephesus during the final years of his life, both before and after his exile on the Isle of Patmos in the Aegean Sea at the time of Domitian, the Emperor Domitian. Um in the early, late 80s and early 90s AD. So in his first epistle, John addressed his readers as my little children, a formula which seems to be the words of an elder to the younger members of his congregation. And during his years in Ephesus, John certainly fits that description. So his second epistle was written from the elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and with whom he certainly seems to have had a personal relationship. And likewise, the third epistle is written, from the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. So John's epistles, the audience for John's epistles, seems to be the local congregation in Ephesus which he seems to have attended and where he seems to have been an elder
1: was but sorry Bill wasn't there also a, a bishop was it in Gaul who was two generations from John like his uh his mentor was actually John's student and then uh eventually the the bishop of Gaul was linked that way So so it shows we can trace back at least some of them back to the you know, the original apostles, like not all of them, of course.
0: Well, well, there was Clement of Rome, and we have surviving epistles from Clement of Rome. And he was either a student of John or a student of a student of John. I don't really remember. But Clement of Rome was probably a student of John because his epistles were written in the very late first century. And John did live. Almost to the end of the first century, by all accounts. Um, There there was also Irenaeus, who I believe was said to have learned from students of students of John. You might be referring to Irenaeus.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. I just remembered it just popped into my head. I wasn't sure. And and is there anything on uh, Timothy or do we not know what happened to him?
0: No, we can't tell what happened to Timothy or to Titus. The Catholic Church has Timothy of the, as the bishop of Ephesus, but it's very clear that while Timothy was in Ephesus at diverse times, Paul did not leave him to be a permanent bishop of Ephesus, that, that Timothy actually traveled to other places and, and preached in other places as well as in Ephesus. He wasn't Yeah, the idea
1: to was Ephesus. that they would set up their own bishop, right? And that they, um, Timothy would keep going around spreading the gospel, and you hope that they would found their own Christian communities. They wouldn't just go around and set themselves up as the pope. Well,
0: well right, exactly. And, and that's the corrupt way that the Roman Catholic Church has claimed that the scriptures teach, but the scriptures don't teach the way the Roman Catholic Church says. And, and that's very plain, especially in the original languages, of course. But wherever a bishop was never meant to be the head of an entire region of churches. There's nothing like that in scripture, in the original scriptures a bishop was an episcopus and and the word bishop in english came from the latin form episcopus and it's a shortened form of that and episcopus in latin is not a true latin word it's a borrowed word from greek episcopus and episcopus is the greek word in our new testament greek which means a supervisor or an overseer of a local assembly of Christians, that the local assembly was originally to appoint one of their elders to the, to the position of episcopus, and he w- would basically be the ruler of that community. But he answered to the assembly itself. He could be voted out at any time. It wasn't a lifetime appointment, and it wasn't supposed to be made by any foreigner. It was supposed to be made by the assembly itself. And that's very clear in the original language of Scripture. But the, 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 um, there's a word in the book of Acts which means elected, and the churches have translated it as ordained. But that's not what it means. And And they perverted other words to justify themselves, and the Roman Catholic Church did it, and the Anglican Church did it, and the Lutheran Church did it. They all made these translations that justify their authority over the people when in fact, the leaders of a local church should answer to the people and be servants of the people, so The Christian religion, even the way the apostles left it in the first century, has never been practiced because we've always been ruled over by people who want to exert authority over us. Christ condemned those people in the book of Revelation as Nicolaitans. The word Nicolaitan means victory over the people or to rule over or conquer the people. Christ condemns those people. That was not how Christianity is meant to be. But God knew, Christ knew that was going to happen ahead of time. So, getting back to John's epistles. The fact that the Revelation, which was also written by John, is entirely Eurocentric, and that can be proven, and that John was in Ephesus, where Paul had spent three years. Paul was in Ephesus from 51 to 54 AD. John was in Ephesus 30 years later, and maybe a little sooner, but he wasn't in Ephesus until well after Paul left, right? John was in Ephesus where Paul had spent three years founding the first Christian assemblies there, and that all of the churches of the Revelation Are located in places where Paul had preached. That shows that both apostles, Peter, I'm I'm sorry, John and Paul, were certainly of the same mind in respect to their intended audience. And we'll get to the importance of this region of Western Anatolia when we discuss the seven churches of the Revelation. But to go to Peter, Peter's two epistles. Peter's first epistle was addressed to the strangers. That word really means sojourners, someone who left their original homeland to settle somewhere else. And that describes the ancient Israelites. So Peter's first epistle was really addressed to the sojourners scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All those places are in Anatolia, most of them in far western Anatolia. Pontus and Galatia, uh, I'm sorry, Pontus and Galatia are in the north of Anatolia, and Cappadocia is in eastern Anatolia. Bithynia is in the north-central Anatolia, and Asia is the entire, or almost the entire, because it never included the Troad. Almost the entire western half of Anatolia was Roman Asia. So, Peter is writing to all of the major Roman districts of Anatolia. And that is where Paul, or disciples of Paul, had established churches throughout Anatolia. Peter is not writing this epistle to Jews. If he'd have written this epistle to Jews... He would not have cited Hosea chapter one and chapter two in the epistle, but he did. He's writing this epistle to scattered Israelites. He's writing this epistle to the assemblies which were founded by Paul of Tarsus and his companions. The sojourners scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, Asia would include almost It would include every one of, I'm sorry, every one of the seven churches in the Revelation. They were all in Roman Asia. Peter called these people elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, meaning that we have to find out why these people are elect in the Old Testament, the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience, which means conformance to the law, the law was only for Israel, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the redemption, which was also only for the children of Israel. All of these places Paul had either preached in or had sent his younger companions to preach in. Peter's second epistle, while it does not contain such an address, was clearly intended for the same people because it is a response and a continuation of his first epistle so peter and john when they wrote their epistles their same audiences were in Anatolia, to the places that were the subject or or the object of paul's ministry there's no doubt
1: right and um Paul was the one that really got this, uh, kind of rolling, right? He was the apostle chosen to head into Europe. Um, the the other apostles, they were kind of, you know, back and forth a little bit double-minded, um, trying to kind of stay semi-Judaism. And at the same time, this, uh, you know, Christianity for the lost tribes, but Paul was the one who really went into Europe and got, and got it going. And, um, it, it this must have Peter must have realized this and started sending you know these epistles out to the churches that he was founding,
0: right? Well, well, right, and, 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 and this is another so it, it, another aspect of early Christianity, which is either absolutely misunderstood or purposely ignored by the Roman Catholic Church and by all the organized churches Christians mainstream denominational Christians they tend to think that the apostles of Christ had some sort of perfect knowledge the day that Christ was crucified that they knew everything and and that they would be able to do everything that Jesus wanted from that time and they would do it all perfectly and that's certainly not true their knowledge was only just beginning Christ revealed to them very little on a need to know basis and even the things he told them they didn't understand until it happened he told them over and over again that he was going to go to Jerusalem and get crucified and died and resurrected from the dead on a third day he told them that several times and even the writers of the gospel admit that the apostles didn't understand it until after it happened even though he explained it to them very literally word for word very literally so in acts chapter two peter is speaking only to judeans scattered who, who were scattered across ancient um, Mesopotamia and Palestine and came to Jerusalem for a feast. The only way they could be in Jerusalem for a feast and be in the temple was to be circumcised Judeans. They could not have been, quote unquote, Gentiles. Even though some of them were from Persia and some of them from Arabia and some of them from diverse other places in Mesopotamia, they were all Judeans because you were not, as Acts chapter 20 proves, you could not go into the temple, Acts chapters 20 and 21. You could not enter into the temple unless you were a circumcised Judean. The penalty was death. So all the men Peter was speaking to and addressing at that first Christian Pentecost were circumcised Judeans. And as you said, much later on, 17 years later, I believe it was, when Paul is in Antioch, he's disputing with Peter because Peter was being hypocritical. And when the Judeans from Jerusalem were present in Antioch, Peter was acting as a Judean And the Judeans wouldn't eat with uncircumcised people of other nations. They wouldn't even eat. They wouldn't have anything to do with them. So Peter was being hypocritical. That's the subject of much of Galatians chapter 2. John was evidently on the side of Peter. And Paul had countered that. Peter received a vision in Acts chapter 10 that he should not reject these men who were uncircumcised, who were coming to him to try to bring him to the house of Cornelius, who was a Roman. Peter received that vision. Otherwise, he would have never went. He would have never went into the home of an uncircumcised man being a Judean. But when Peter received that vision, the vision instructed him that he had to accept those men, so he did. And he saw that even without baptism, because water baptism really wasn't necessary in the Christian dispensation, it's still not. Peter realized that without baptism, that the the Holy Spirit descended on the household of Cornelius when they received the gospel of Christ and accepted it. So, even with that vision, Peter still didn't have a perfect understanding of the history of the scattered 12 tribes. So in Acts chapter and I'm sorry, in Galatians chapter 2, which is the epistle to the Galatians, and I I demonstrate this from the circumstances and the statements in all of Paul's epistles that the Well, in my commentary for each of Paul's epistles, when exactly they were written, and I'm very confident about it. The epistle to the Galatians was written just ahead of Paul's visit to the Galatians, which is described in Acts chapter 18. That's how late it was written. And and we're talking about the late 40s very late 40s maybe early 50s a.d maybe from 49 to 51 a.d in there because in 51 a.d paul is in ephesus and that's where he goes from this time he ends up in ephesus for three years so that's when the epistle to the galatians was written and that late peter still doesn't quite get That these circumcised Judeans, if indeed they are Israelites, are no different than these uncircumcised people of the nations of scattered Israel. Even though they're not circumcised, it's not about circumcision anymore. It's about of of the genitals. It's about circumcision of the heart. And the circumcision of the genitals never did the ancient children of Israel any good. So that is the the reason for Paul's entire discourse about the works of the law. The works of the law are the rituals of the law. That's what it means. It could be demonstrated that that's what Paul meant by that phrase in contemporary language from the first century, such as the language of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And even in the Septuagint, the rituals of the law are referred to as the works of the law. That's what Paul means throughout that epistle to the Galatians, where he tells his audience that the works of the law are nothing, although Christians should do good works, right? So so that's the reason for the entire epistle, epistle to the Galatians, to resist the Judaization of Christianity, which Peter and John, in certain aspects, were succumbing to. So, Paul really corrected Peter and John on that subject, and that shows in their later epistles.
1: Yeah, and and sorry, there was just one thing I meant to mention uh, in regards to what you said, where Paul could clearly see that that there was a difference between the Athenians, you know, Athens, and the other Israelites, the the lost tribes who had set up all the nations around in Greece. That alone shows you that Christ wasn't for everyone. Christianity was not for every person, you know, in existence. It was only for these lost tribes, the Israelites. And, And that alone proves that the modern judeo-christianity is completely forced just by realizing right there right
0: well well, absolutely because paul never spoke to the ionians that the athenian athens is in a district of greece just north of the peloponnesus on the mainland above the isthmus right um in It's not really northern Greece. It's better labeled um, central Greece, Attica, Thessaly. Northern Greece, today, it is ancient parts of ancient Macedonia and Illyria, what would have been Illyria 2,000 years ago anyway. It's the lines today don't correspond really well with the lines or the perceived re- historical regions in ancient history. But Attica was just above the Peloponnesus. It was a large district of what I would call central Greece because I would consider the Peloponnese to be southern Greece that was on the side of the agency, on the eastern side. That was ancient Attica. That's where Athens is located. Above that would be Thessaly, and the um, Phoenicians, according to the ancient records, were very numerous settlers of Thessaly. So Athens was populated and Attica was the traditional homeland of the Ionian Greeks. And the Ionian Greeks did not come from the Israelites Everywhere the Old Testament refers to Greeks, if you look at the original Hebrew word, the term is Yavana. And that would be spelled like Y A V A N A, the Yavana. And the Ionian Greeks are also called Yavana in Persian inscriptions in which were inscribed in Aramaic, which is a tongue, a language very close to Hebrew. So the Yavanna are the descendants of Javan, it's spelled, J-A-V-A-N, in Genesis chapter 10. Javan was the son of Japheth. So when Paul goes to Athens, he's speaking to these Ionians that descended from Javan, the son of Japheth, in Genesis chapter 10, verse 4. They are not Israelites. They aren't even Hebrews. They aren't even Semites. But they are fellow white Adamic people of of a different nation, of the Japhethites. And Paul spoke to them not one word about sin, about forgiveness for sin, about redemption, about reconciliation, or about Christ. Nothing. He only spoke of the one true God. Whom the Athenians had, had called the unknown God, he used that temple to the unknown God as the basis for his address to them. And in resurrection from the dead, were a two, pr- and, and that all nations of men were made from one. And that's a reference not to blood. Blood isn't in, even in the text. That's a reference to. The Adam of Genesis chapter three, because they white, also white descended ruddy. from Adam.
1: <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I just can say, yeah, white ruddy Adam.
0: Right. The Athenians were clearly white. Now that there were other Greeks, that there were other, that there were four primary um, groups of Greeks. And the two that came to that there's the Aheolians and there's the Danans and there's the Dorians and that there is the Athenians, the Ionians. The four primary, there are other subgroups which came from them, right? But in all of the ancient Greek literature, there are four primary tribes which made up the Greeks. And that's the Dorians and the Danans and the Achelians and the Ionians and the. I'm going to speak a little about the Achelian Greeks a little later on, um, when I discuss the seven churches. But those four groups of Greeks in the Greeks' own histories, in all of the ancient Greek histories and the the poets and the myths, the Danans and The Dorians are recent tribes, which recently came to to Greece by sea. And in all of these accounts, the Danans invaded the Peloponnesus. They are probably the the, um, bearers of what we call Mycenaean civilization. And they came from Egypt, but they were not Egyptians. So what people named and, and it's not Danins in Greek, it's Danae or Danoi. So what people named Danoi or Danai could have come from Egypt in the 16th or 15th centuries BC. And it's only the Hebrew tribe of Dan are the only people that could have came to Greece from Egypt. Now. Two centuries. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Two generations, according to the popular accounts. Two generations after the Trojan War. Now, according to the Greek, the Greeks' own dating of the Trojan War, which is found, the exact number of years is found in Thucydides, the historian. He was the second notable linear prose historian that came out of of Greece the first was herodotus and the second is thucydides he was an athenian general and he he made a history of the peloponnesian wars which he didn't finish he only made the first 20 years i i nobody knows what happened to him actually he he died because his book was incomplete. Um, It was a good record of the first 20 years of the Peloponnesian Wars, down to about, if I'm not, I'm I'm probably off a little, but I'm talking about 420 BC, perhaps, when it was cut off. It didn't cover the end of the war. It might have been 430. I could be off 10 years either way. It don't matter. But Well, Thucydides listed the exact number of years between the invasion of Persia and the Trojan War, which was over 700 years before that. And from that, we could assume that the Trojan War was about 1200 to 1180 BC. And there are other ways to arrive at that estimation besides Thucydides. However, and, and I, I got so far off track, I'm, I'm kind of lost. <laughs>
1: okay.
0: Okay. The Trojan War, let's date it from 1200 to about 1180 B.C. in there. Two generations later, according to the much earlier Greek writers, did the Dorians invade the Peloponnesus and Thessaly and parts of northern Greece all at the same time, and they came by sea. The Dorians, if you read Homer's Iliad, which is speaking about the time of the Trojan War. It's speaking about the Trojan War. He only mentions Dorians as being in Crete, the island in, in the Mediterranean off the coast of southern Anatolia. So, where did the Dorians come from? And once you understand that there are clear archaeological connections to ancient Dor that Corinthian architecture was discovered in ancient Dor on the coast of the land of Manasseh in ancient Israel, then you, you, you can start to put from, from, a, from a layer of strata that predates the Assyrian invasions of Israel they found this Corinthian, evidence of Corinthian architecture. You could see that the Corinthian architecture that we know from the Dorian Greeks in Greece clearly came from ancient Palestine. And once you understand it, in, Homer, in, in Homer's accounts, the Dorians are only on Crete. There are no Dorians in Greece. They had to come from somewhere because they weren't original Cretans. They must have come from Dor. In Palestine, and they traveled and invaded the Peloponnesus two generations after the Trojan War, which is why homer didn 't mention them as being in Greece anywhere in Greece at the time of the iliad and homer 's Iliad actually enumerates all of the tribes of the Greeks and the, and the wider world and Anatolia and and the Trojans. And he lists all the tribes that took the side of the Danans and all of the tribes that took the side of the Trojans and were defenders of the Trojans. So all of this, it is very detailed. And Homer Homer draws a very accurate picture of the time hundreds of years before his, the time of the Trojan War.
1: I was just going to say this would be around the period of the judges, right? So um, Israel at that time wouldn't be this, um, you know, massive, uh, powerful kingdom just yet. It would just be divided tribes, uh, you know, constantly being led by judges going back and forth (laughs) uh, with little minor invasions in and out, uh, fighting them back. And that would also you could also see how a group would just say, you know, F this, let's just go to uh, Greece, the Dorians I'm speaking about.
0: Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and now what we have evidence that cements this interpretation of history in the second century B.C., where this is recorded in both the first book of Maccabees, which is an apocryphal book of scripture, and it's recorded in Flavius Josephus in his Antiquities of the Judeans, that the king of Sparta, The Dorian Greeks were, were, um, the Corinthians were Dorian Greeks, but the most notable of the Dorian Greeks were the Spartans. They were the great warriors that they fought with the Athenians for hundreds of years, that they were the um, partners with the Athenians in in the, the Persian invasions and repelling and defeating the Persians so the dorians the spartans were the most famous warriors right the 300 at thermopylae what were the 300 at thermopylae were spartans and and noted for their courage so the dorian king of sparta in the second century early second century a.d probably about between 170 and 160 a.d wrote a letter to the high priest, Onias, in Jerusalem. And this is just before the wars that the Maccabees waged against the Syrians and the Syrian defiling of the temple. It's just before that. So the letter wasn't answered until after that. And in the answer to the letter was an apology about why it took so long to reply. But this king... This Spartan king had written onias, the high priest of the temple in Jerusalem, professing to know from their own writings, writings which we don't have now, that they were offspring of Abraham. They were offspring of Abraham and kindred by blood to the people at Jerusalem. They knew this. There were no secrets in, in, in the ancient world that haven't that haven't been lost. I mean, people knew where they came from at one time, but none of, it, none, none of the actual records really survived in any um, great volume. So we only have these statements, hints, and clues that, that are sort of sprinkled throughout the entire body of classical writing, but those clues are there. And we know from archaeology that the clues are leading us in the right direction.
1: That's amazing, isn't it? You, that you know, you wonder did all the other like <laughs> Greek tribes have uh, you know some kind of chronolo- chronology like that? Did the Trojans realize that they were from Abraham? You know, it's all just lost, right?
0: Well, well, right, it all is just lost, but I mean, Paul of Tarsus told the Romans in Romans chapter 1 that they had the truth of God and changed it into a lie. That Now, God to Paul is the, the word that we pronounce as Yahweh. Yahweh is God. And Josephus, Flavius Josephus, writing in Greek, so he was referring to Greek, right? Writing in Greek said that the name of God is spelled with four vowels four vowels now the roman high god a lot of people will tell you oh it's jupiter so you won't really make the connection but if you look at 19th century english literature it was rarely jupiter it was usually jove j-o-v-e but then you got to realize that it was no jove in original latin there was no letter J until the 16th century. It was an I. And it was no letter V distinguished. It was a U in Latin. I-O-U-E. Yahweh. Yahweh. There were no silent vowels in Latin. That, that, that Those vowels were pronounced or they became a diphthong. I-O-U-E. Yahweh, Yahweh, the I, when it, be- begins a, when it begins a syllable and it's followed by a vowel, is pronounced like we pronounce a Y. And, and the U, when it begins a syllable and is followed by a vowel, is usually pronounced like we would pronounce a W. That's why those letters were distinguished by medieval Typographers, medieval typesetters, medieval printers. They distinguish those letters to distinguish better the sound differences between the U and the V and the W. They created a W and a V in the Middle
1: Ages. And, and also, um, just there's that comic asterisk Was it Asterix and obliques? And they always said, by Jove. You know, even back then, it was always Jove, the God of the Romans, not Jupiter.
0: Uh, Just, I had uh, this, I had proof somewhere at Christogenea. I don't remember which podcast, it might have been Romans chapter one, my commentary on Romans chapter one, where Jupiter is a contraction for Yahweh Pater, God, Father. Yahweh or Jove, the Father. That's where Jupiter comes from. That's where the word comes from. From a contraction made out of the words Yove, Jove or Yove or Yahweh, and Father or Pater. So Jupiter is Yahweh the Father. And the Romans, as Paul told them, they had the truth of God and changed it into a lie. So the Romans, who descended from the Trojans by all ancient accounts... There's many witnesses to that. The Romans descended from the Trojans, and the Trojans must have been Israelites, because the Romans were Israelites, as Paul tells them throughout his epistle to the Romans. So we're getting way off base, and we do have to discuss the the seven churches of the Revelation, because some of these um, assemblies in the seven churches of the Revelation were addressed in Paul's epistles, or were actually, many of them were actually founded by Paul of Tarsus, even if they're not mentioned in his epistles. If they weren't founded by Paul of Tarsus, they were founded by disciples of Paul of Tarsus. And the first church in the Revelation is Ephesus. Ephesus, at the time of Paul, was the capital of Roman Asia. So it was a very cosmopolitan city. Actually, all of these seven churches were in um, cosmopolitan cities, just about. So Ephesus was the capital of Roman Asia on the southwest coast of Asia Minor. It was on the southwest coast. It was a port city on the southwest west coast of what we know as modern Turkey. And I'll call that Asia Minor for, the, for our purposes here. In ancient times, the district around Ephesus was called Caria, and that was evidently a settlement of the Phoenicians. The Carians and Lelages, as they're described by the most ancient historians, had come from sea, from the sea to settle Caria. And Another one of their principal cities was Miletus, and the Malaysians were actually famous colonists of the ancient world. The Malaysians, who were Phoenicians, had by the 8th century BC established established colonies around the coast of the Black Sea, along the Danube River, and as far west as Spain and Ireland. In ancient Ireland, the noblemen of the Milids, or Malaysians, were the legitimate kings of Ireland into the historic period. In that same century, however, the 8th century BC, the Ionians from Attica, of which Athens is the principal city, had invaded the coast of Anatolia and occupied many cities, including Ephesus and Miletus, Whereafter, the coast was called Ionia. So, if you look at the Greek accounts... I'm sorry. If you look at the Greek accounts of the Ionian invasions of Ephesus and Miletus, they never killed all the Carrions. They killed a lot of the men, but they never killed all the Carrions, and they took the women for wives. I'm sorry. Go on.
1: I was just going to say that there is this... um, you, you know, when a lot of them came to Ireland, something must have happened. So it could have been either this Ionian invasion or later with the Persian aggression when they started taking all the coast. Uh, one of the two. Ne- nevertheless, uh, a big fleet eventually went to Spain and then up to Ireland where, um, you know, a mass of Malaysians came to Ireland. I, well, I know well, there it's... are already, you know, little colonies here and there, but there was eventually this mass exodus.
0: I would probably relate that to the Ionian invasions or, or to a, an anticipation of them. Because I'm, it's hard to tell in what order the Ionians had conquered the cities of the coast of Anatolia. But they went all the way north to um, Smyrna and probably even further north than that. And that entire coast became known as Ionia. So the Malaysians may have seen it coming. We really don't know because we really don't have a good history of the period. But the Malaysians may have seen it coming. It, if the Ionians went to Smyrna first and went to the northern cities first and worked their way south, it really can't be told. I, I don't think it's re- actually um, it, It's mentioned in, in diverse ancient histories, but it's, there's no full accounts from this period that is basically a dark age of Greek history between the time of the Trojan Wars and the Dorian invasion, we know very little about ancient Greece down to the 7th century. When when this sort of, after the destruction of Judah and Israel, this sort of an enlightenment in ancient Greece, and they start writing history again but the first things they start writing about are the ancient trojan wars so that ephesus is the first of the seven churches of the revelation the second is smyrna and smyrna is a city on the western coast of anatolia north of ephesus and miletus and it seems to have been an aelian greek settlement the Achelians, being one of those four tribes of, of four original tribes of ancient Greeks, an Achelian Greek settlement before being taken over by the invading Ionians, the Achelians were from Thessaly. They themselves had fled to Anatolia. They were from Thessaly, a place north of Attica, which was also settled by Phoenicians. So it's difficult to ascertain whether the Achaeolian Greeks are of a Jepethite, meaning they were related to the Ionians, or a Shemitic origin, meaning that they were actually Phoenicians. It, it's hard to tell. The Lydians to the east made war against Smyrna for many decades in the early 7th century BC, and eventually they destroyed the ancient city. And it was in Ionian hands at that time. But it was rebuilt by the Macedonians, the Macedonians, if I must, in the late 4th century BC. So the Smyrna we know in the New Testament is not the original city of ancient history. It's rebuilt by the Macedonians. And just over a century after it was rebuilt by the Macedonians, Smyrna, was one of the first cities, if not the first city, in Anatolia to express an allegiance to Rome. Rome was empire building at that time, the beginning of the third century. Pergamus is the next city, the third city of the seven churches. Pergamus, or sometimes it's called Pergamon, or Pergamum after the Latin, the um, I prefer Pergamus because Pausanias, the ancient Greek historian geographer, he called it Pergamus and not Pergamon. Pergamus is twenty miles inland from the coast of Anatolia, opposite the Isle, the island of Lesbos. It's in a province. It's north of Smyrna. It's in a province called Mysia, just south of the Troad. Mysia was also settled by Aeolian Greeks. The Aeolian Greeks in Anatolia had fled Thessaly upon the Dorian invasions of Greece, which reportedly began, as I said, just a few generations after the Trojan War or near the end of the 12th century BC. So the Greek kings of this region in Mysia had favored Persia later on in history. And when they revolted from from Persia, they were defeated by the Persians, who controlled Mysia for nearly 50 years in the 4th century BC, before the region was retaken and reconquered by Alexander the Great. Later, Pergamos was the kingdom, the seat, the capital seat of the kingdom of Attalus, who defeated the invading Galatians, or Gauls, and bargained with them to settle in Galatia in the 3rd century BC. Upon the death of the last of the descendants of Attalus, the, they called the Atalid kings, in 133 BC, the kingdom of Attalus, the kingdom of Pergamos, was bequeathed to Rome. And that included Sardis. The next city of the seven churches is Theatira, which is actually Theotira. Theatira was an inland city about 50 miles northeast of ancient Sardis or 20 miles southeast of Pergamus. So it was an inland city and it was on the borders of ancient Mysia and Lydia. The city had a couple of different Greek names. First, it was called Pelopia, and later on it was called Semiramis, after a fabled Assyrian queen, before it was named Theatira in 290 BC by the Macedonian rulers, the Seleucid kings of Anatolia, or perhaps by the Successors of Lycurgus, I'm not entirely sure, who was also a Macedonian. Sardis was inland in Roman Asia. Sardis is the next city of the Revelation, the fifth city of the churches, the seven churches in the Revelation. Sardis was inland in Roman Asia. Evidently, it was nearly straight east of Smyrna and distant approximately 53 miles. In the 8th century BC, Sardis was the capital of the Lydian Empire, which at times, but not always, had ruled all of Western Anatolia, the empire of Croesus, Croesus being the last king or emperor of the Lydians. He was um, taken captive by by the Persians and his entire empire was destroyed, conquered by the Persians. So at times from the eighth century until the coming of the Persians in the fifth century, the Lydians ruled all of Western Anatolia. The Cimmerians had overrun Phrygia, Lydia and Sardis in the late seventh century BC. They didn't stay The Lydian Empire was ultimately destroyed by the Persians in the 6th century. I'm sorry, the late 6th century. Until Xerxes was defeated by the Greeks, all of Anatolia was ruled by Persia. So that's up until about probably 470 BC. But Persia retained rule over much of Anatolia, the greater portion of it, until the coming of Alexander the Great. The next city, the sixth city of the seven churches, is Philadelphia, which was also inland and east of Smyrna by about 75 miles, but on a line a little further south than Sardis, in territory once belonging to the kingdom of Lydia, and before that, Phrygia. It was established as a Greek city in the early 2nd century B.C. by the Attalid king of Pergamus, Southeast of Philadelphia were three towns rather close to one another, forming a triangle. One of them is Colossae, and Philemon, to whom Paul had also written an epistle, was a resident of Colossae. The other two, Hierapolis and Laodicea, are mentioned in chapter 4 of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. From Hierapolis, Colossae was a few miles southeast, and Laodicea was a few miles southwest. Laodicea, the last of the seven churches of the Revelation, is said to have been built by the Seleucid Greek kings. Antiochus to Theos, the actual, the Greek kings actually thought they were gods, right? Late in the first half of the third century BC, probably about 260 to 250 BC, that's when he ruled. So while some of the cities where these churches were located had been inhabited by Lydians or Phrygians or Persians in their distant past, the dominant elements of their populations by the time of the proliferation of the gospel of christ the gospel of christ were phoenician ionian greeks macedonian greeks or romans however all of these people were certainly white adamic people all seven churches of the revelation were in this one small area of anatolia And these represented, these all represented traits which would characterize the greater body of white Christians down throughout history. So in summary, concerning both the epistles of Paul and the seven churches of Revelation, the Hellenistic and Roman periods brought about a virtual homogenization of Greek and then Greco-Roman society, in which tribal distinctions were maintained. But the significance of those distinctions was greatly diminished, in spite of the fact that race mixing continued to be frowned upon, and the Romans even had laws governing which people or tribes could intermarry with others or with whom. The Romans had laws they had to allow, by law, the Macedonians to contract Roman marriages. And they did that, and and that's well-recorded in history. The Macedonians and people of other Greek nations and tribes and races. The Latin word, connubium, described the right to contract a Roman marriage. And it was granted only... To Roman citizens. And historically, it was only given to certain tribes of non Romans, like the Macedonians, the Macedonians. So, in whole or in parts, for a thousand years before Christ, the entire area in question, Western Anatolia, was at diverse times under the power of many different nations. These nations included the Phrygians. The Phrygians were, by early accounts, colonists from the Thracians who crossed over into Anatolia and established the kingdom of Phrygia. The Thracians were descendants of Tiras, the Japhethite. He's listed among the sons of Japheth in Genesis chapter 10. Then there were the Lydians. The Lydians were descendants of Lud. The son of Shem in Genesis chapter ten. Then, and there's biblical evidence for all of this. Then there's the early Phoenician settlers of Cari,a Pamphylia, and Cilicia, along the southern the southern coast of Anatolia. And then there are the Ionians, who were the sons of Javan, the Japhethite in Genesis chapter ten. And then. There are the Dorians. The Dorians are a colony of Israelites from Dor in the land of Manasseh. And then there are the Persians. And the Persians were mostly the sons of Elam, the son of Shem. But they had assembled their armies from all of the nations of Mesopotamia and the east. Then there are the Scythians and the Cimmerians, who were always encroaching upon Anatolia from the east and the Scythians came to settle in much of northern and northeastern Anatolia by the time of Christ the Scythians dominated those areas and the Cimmerians had overrun the kingdom of Phrygia and obliterated it and that was the kingdom of King Midas the king that everything he touched turned to gold, and his tomb has been discovered by archaeologists. Well, Midas evidently couldn't touch the Chimerians because they destroyed his kingdom. <laughs> the Chimerians then overran much of Lydia, but they didn't stay. They went up through the through the um, Bosporus and crossed over into mainland Europe in the sixth century, or or I'm sorry, the very late seventh century BC. So Homer knew of the Cimmerians to the north, but Homer made the mistake of believing they originated in the north, where it's very clear in Assyrian archeology span and in later Greek histories that they did come from the east, not from the north. they dwelt in the north, in the, the Crimea, right, on the northern part of the Black Sea, and stretched themselves along southern Europe to the plains of Hungary by the end of the 6th century BC. Actually, by the end of the 7th century BC is more than likely. <clears throat> so these are the people... And and along with whatever remnants there were of the early Trojans, such as the Illyrians, the Illyrians had a tribe among them called Dardanians, and the Dardanians were Trojans. And the Romans, by all accounts, were a colony of the Trojans. So these are the people that vied for domination of Western Anatolia over a period of 800 years up to the time of Christ. Some of these nations, such as the Lydians, the Lydians are mentioned in Hittite inscriptions from the time of the ancient Hittite Empire, which was disintegrated by 1400 BC. They were the Luwians of the Hittite inscriptions. The Assyrian and Babylonian empires were, of course, well known to the Greeks, but those empires did not stretch into Western Anatolia, although they did rule over portions of the eastern Anatolia. So by the time of Christ, these areas, the areas where Paul had written his epistles, the areas where Paul had um, journeyed and established churches, the areas where were located the seven churches of the Revelation, By the time of Christ, these areas had been dominated for nearly 400 years by the Macedonian Greeks and then by the Romans. The Phoenicians and the Dorian and the Macedonian Greeks and the Romans and the Illyrians who descended from the Trojans, as well as the Galatians and the Scythians and the Cimmerians were all descended from the ancient Israelites. So within the history of Mesopotamia and Anatolia, we see that the nations of the children of Israel who were going to be scattered among the nations, the Israelites were told they were going to be scattered among the nations. We see those nations that they were scattered among. And we see the nations of the children of Israel which had emerged from that scattering all in fulfillment to the words of the prophets, and for that reason, I believe the earliest expressions of the fulfillments of Christianity were centered in that region.
1: <clears throat> yeah, it, it's it's really hard to picture all this, all these different uh, tribes and uh, regions, and try to picture it all in your head. But but hopefully, everything you just said kind of uh, you know helps picture it all. But but. What you can realize is all the churches were all in that region that we now call West Turkey, right, uh, Anatolia, and they were all <laughs> white uh, colonists from the Israelite people.
0: Well, well, right. But once you see that the Hittites ruled over Eastern Anatolia even in the days of Abraham, and Abraham is like, let's say, two thousand to nineteen hundred BC. In that time frame. We had the call of Abraham and his migration to Palestine and the birth of Isaac and a little later, the birth of Jacob. By um, 1650, 1700 to 1650 BC, in that period, Jacob and his 12 sons are going down to Egypt. They emerged from Egypt around 1450 B.C., and I could establish this all perfectly from history and ancient chronology. Approximately 1450 B.C., they emerged from Egypt after um, 200 years of which, during which most of that period they were in slavery. And some of them emerged from Egypt, and they settled in Troy and and various other places along the coast of Anatolia and cities in greece and this is mentioned in ancient histories deodorus siculus who who was quoting much earlier historians i actually identified five ancient sources for this and and the historicity of the exodus what well that's 1450 bc and and 250 years later right smack in the middle of the judges period You have the Trojan Wars, which, of course, there's no mention of in Scripture. And then within 75 to 100 years, you had the Dorians emigrating. The Dorians had been emigrating and, and going to Crete during that time. And then the Dorians in Crete invade the Peloponnesus and areas of northern Greece, They didn't invade Attica so far as we know from history, but they invaded Thessaly and and Northern Greece and the entire Peloponnesus. And they drove a lot of Danans into Northern Greece. And the Danans that were driven even further north than Thessaly, they had combined themselves with Dorians and Illyrians and, and became what we know as Macedonia. And Macedonia was basically a, a composite nation of different Greek and and Trojan tribes. So Macedonia and Illyria. So so it began as an empire. And and it was always Alexander and his successors had always sought in order to better control the areas they conquered, they had always sought to homogenize them as well. So that's that that has a um that has a negative side to it once you realize that a lot of the people of Mesopotamia and Eastern Anatolia were also descended from Hittites or from other from other Canaanites. It it's not good, right? It it's like trying to homogenize London today or the south of England today, right? What are you gonna end up with but something quite brown? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, it just self implodes eventually. Um, do you want to go on to the uh, Abrahamic Covenant next? Well, well,
0: right. But yeah, you had another point in in here, and that's that that certain words and phrases in each epistle clearly identify the people to whom Paul is writing as lost sheep, and this is why. This history is why. And and these words and phrases are quite prolific. When the letters of Paul are brought together with the history, the ancient history and the inscriptions, as well as the words of the prophets, the narrative is absolutely consistent with Christian identity. This is why we have Christian identity, right? This is why we believe what we do. Paul uses terms like redemption, deliverance from sin. Forgiveness for sin, reconciliation, the very imputation of sin itself. And even Paul explains that these things concerned only the children of Israel. So does the Old Testament. Who was the law given to? In the 147th Psalm, David said, David actually rejoiced that Yahweh God had given the law and the statutes only to the children of Israel. And he rejoiced that God had not done so with any other nation. So, if you look at the epistles of Paul, in Romans chapter 4, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. In Romans chapter 5, Paul explains that sin is not imputed where there is no law. Who is he talking to if he tells them that they sinned? If he tells them that because they sinned, they required forgiveness for their sin. Because only Israel had the law. This is very simple. This is not complicated. If Paul himself says that sin is not imputed where there is no law, If the Old Testament demonstrates that sin is not imputed where there is no law, even though there is sin, if there's no law, you can't be punished for sinning. There was no law concerning murder when Cain killed Abel. So Cain couldn't be executed for that murder according to the law. He was punished in other ways, but he couldn't be executed for that sin Because there was no law. So while the law requires death of a murderer, Cain couldn't be murdered. Because there was no law. That's just one simple example. There are many others. If sin can only be punished because you are subject to the law, because you were given the law, then all these epistles that Paul wrote to these eight audiences, the people must have been Israelites because Paul told them all that they sinned, but he told them all that they were forgiven of their sins. And he used other terms that only apply to the children of Israel, such as redemption and reconciliation. So he had to be talking to Israelites at every turn. When the Bible is read in the churches, it is read according to church doctrine. And this language is virtually ignored or it's explained away, or the meanings of the words are twisted. But if you look at the words of the apostles themselves, the only viewpoint where the New Testament makes perfect historical and biblical sense is with the Christian identity viewpoint. Go to Romans chapter 1. Paul told the Romans they had the truth of God and changed it into a lie. If Yahweh God in the Old Testament only made himself known to the children of Israel, as he expressed as early as Exodus chapter 3, then which other of these pagan adamic nations or which of these other races had the truth of god and changed it into a lie none of them because none of them had the truth of god because our bible tells us the truth of god was only revealed from the time of abraham forward to these ancient children of israel which began with the giving of the lord sinai the call of moses out of egypt in order to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. It only applies to them.
1: Right. And there's um, you know, a few others as well where he speaks later on in Romans he says that they're the wild olive tree that be can be grafted in to the main olive tree, right? And that's the sorry, the cultivated olive tree. And what he means is the Israelites who were given the law were the cultivated olive tree, whilst the trojans who left the main body of the exodus and then went to rome uh they would become the wild olive tree they're still part of the tree but they just don't quite have the law but now with christ they can be grafted back in and many people try to twist that and say oh once christ came it all became universal and anybody can be grafted in but that's not what he's saying he's saying that they already were israelites and that they can now be grafted in that's what he's saying. It's very different.
0: Well, well right. We, we, we have our practices but because they were handed down from generation to generation within our culture. And, and I really do believe that cultural acclamation to the law is what kept us civilized and is what Yahweh meant in Jeremiah chapter 31, where he said, speaking of the children of Israel, that I would write my law on their hearts. And in Romans chapter two, Paul alludes to that very phenomenon, and he commends the Romans because the Romans built a society founded upon the rule of law, even though it wasn't perfect in relation to the laws of the Old Testament, it was founded upon the rule of law and sought equitable justice for, for the accused and for the victims. So the Romans had a, a very orderly and, and empire which functioned under the rule of law, even though some of the emperors themselves were not perfect examples of that at diverse times. So Paul commended the Romans in Romans chapter two for following the law written on their hearts and that prophecy was made only concerning the children of israel in jeremiah chapter 31. so in romans chapter 1 we see one way where the romans must have been descended from the ancient israelites in romans chapter 2 we see another way where the romans must have been descended from the ancient israelites in romans chapter 4 paul speaks about abraham and and In the later manuscripts upon which the King James Version and and many other versions are are based, it only says, Abraham, our father. But, and and that word father is twisted into something other than an ancestor, where in the Bible it always refers to an ancestor, period. And, And Paul actually says, Abraham, our forefather. And Paul goes on in Romans chapter 4 to speak of the promise to Abraham that his seed would become many nations. And he makes the assertion that in Christ the promise is sure to all the seed. According to the promise that your seed would become many nations paul is not um using some sort of metaphorical meaning of father and seed if you go back and look at the promise to which he refers it says very clearly yahweh god says to abraham your seed will come out of your loins that's the same seed to which Paul is referring when he speaks about Sarah's womb in that same chapter. That those many nations would be from Sarah's womb. In Romans chapter 4 verse 18, Paul said that Abraham would be the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Paul is bringing the gospel of Christ to those nations not to any other nations he didn't present it to the athenians in acts 17 he didn't present it to the lycaonians in acts 14 but he did present it to the galatians to the corinthians to the romans and we can show that galatians corinthians and romans in history all descended from the ancient children of Israel. And how that happened, it's in scripture and the circumstances and the records are all there in ancient history. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul told the Corinthians, all of our ancestors, meaning his, he didn't say my ancestors, he said all of our ancestors were baptized by Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So, like you said, the Romans had descended from the Trojans. And the Trojans evidently departed from Egypt and settled in the Troad. And by all the early Greek accounts, Dardanus, the legendary founder of Troy, came to Samothrace, to the island first by sea. But never say, they never say where he came from. But he came by sea and, and then crossed into the Troad from Samothrace, ultimately, and the colony which he left of Dardans, eventually became known as the Trojans, even though they retained that label, Dardans, the most famous city, was said to have been founded by a grandson, or maybe it was a great-grandson named Tros from which we have the name of the city Troy. So that's the Greek legend, and they came by sea, but it never says where they came from. But at the same time, if you look at the genealogy from this legendary Darda Darda, or Dardanus down to the time of the Trojan War, it corresponds very well. It fits the same time frame that we have from the century before the exodus down to the exodus itself and down to the time when we believe the trojan war was it, it all fits so we have darda what we have solomon compared in wisdom to the surrounding nations and solomon was famous for his wisdom in the nations all about and two men are named in that passage in 1 Kings chapter 4, Darda and Chalcol. And in Greek history and myth, Calchas is the legendary founder of the region in southern Anatolia that became known as Pamphylia. And Dardanus, or Darda, Dardanus, is the legendary founder of the colony of Dardans, which eventually became known as Tro- the Troad and Troy. In First Cor- so that's how the Romans descended from the ancient Israelites. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul spells out to these Corinthians how that all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. So the Trojans never received the law because their emigration into Europe bypass Mount Sinai so Paul talked only to, to the Romans only of the fact that they had the truth of God at one time because they did they were raised with it but changed it into a lie and that the law was written in their hearts and also as you said that they were a wild olive tree as opposed to a cultivated olive tree they were still olives But they had to be grafted back onto the tree, and that happened in Christ. Christ is the vine. We are the branches. If we do good, we stay on the vine. If we depart from him, if we don't keep his commandments, we're going to be broken off. We're going to become broken off branches. That's the same analogy Paul's using in Romans chapter 11. The Romans were disobedient branches that were broken off. And they had to be put back on, grafted back on, because that's the vine they came from in the first place. But the Corinthians, they did have the law. They were at Mount Sinai. And that's what Paul's ex- expressing to them, because they were Dorian Greeks. They were in the Exodus. Their ancestors didn't part depart from the main body of Israel until much later, probably 500 years after the Trojans, three or 400 years after the Exodus, their ancestors departed from Dor and settled in Greece. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul speaks to them from that perspective. When you take what's in Paul's epistles, look at the origins of people in ancient history and archaeology, everything lines up. It all lines up. But the churches will never get it because they don't study the Bible the way that we study the Bible.
1: Yeah, the, that Jewish lens, right? Right, uh, a Jewish there one lens. more, um, Galatians, he says the law was our schoolmaster for Christ. Well, right. well, if they didn't have the law, how can it be their schoolmaster as well? Uh, if they were the roaming Scythians who once had the law and the customs probably passed on – you know, the majority of it, then they would understand uh, Christianity, of course.
0: Well, even more in Galatians chapter four, Paul told them that Christ came to redeem them that were under the law. He didn't say that Christ came to redeem anybody else. Christ didn't come to redeem anybody else but the children of Israel. So that again proves that these Galatians were descended from ancient Israelites who were under the law. Just because they were put off in divorce by by Yahweh God doesn't mean that they weren't under the law. They were always under the law. As Paul explained in Romans chapter seven, the wife is under the law of the husband until the husband dies. So the Galatians were still under the law until the redemption, which was in Christ. Yahweh God coming to die in the flesh so that he could take back these Israelites as he promised to take them back so at the same time he freed them from the law but bought them back with his blood that's the meaning of redemption to buy something back that you once had if you never had something in the first place how do you redeem it you can't redeem it you take your lawnmower down to the pawn shop and put it in a pawn shop and you get a hundred bucks and maybe a week or two later, when you got $125, you could go redeem that, pond, that lawnmower from the pawn shop. But you can't redeem the stuff that I brought to the pawn shop. You can't redeem it if you didn't have it in the first place. You don't own it. You can only redeem stuff that you owned. That's the language it uses in the Old Testament. That's what redemption means, to buy something back that you once had that you're entitled to buy back because the law entitles you to buy that back and and there's all sorts of laws governing redemption in the old testament and that's the law by which god lives by which god exists so these nations of europe they all descending from the ancient israelites that's the fulfillment of the abrahamic covenant and and there were other nations that were yet to come because there, there were many movements of these Scythians and, and these other peoples throughout Europe, all the way up till about the sixth century AD. The Germanic tribes were still moving around in, in Europe, and the Slavic tribes were making incursions. And those Slavic tribes, a lot of them descended from Gepethites, but a lot of them very probably descended from Scythian Israelites because the lines between Jepethite and Israelite or, or Scythian and Sarmatian or Scythian or German and Slav became very blurred in early European history. That They're not concrete, definitive lines. So these people were still moving around and creating the nations that they became in Europe un- until the sixth century, in the case of the Slavs, until the ninth century, 10th century, to create the nations of modern Europe. But there's another older prophecy that Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. So if there are Jepethite Slavic tribes in Europe, that's fulfillment of that prophecy because most of the peoples of Europe of Western Europe are descended from those tribes that came from ancient Israel. That yeah, and the is... nations
1: are Israelite nations with some Jepethites in, in them. So it's the tents of Shem that it's exactly the prophecy, right?
0: Absolutely. And that also happened in Anatolia. Even if some Jepethite tribes had, and Greece, even if some Jepethite tribes had dominated those areas in ancient history, they came to be dominated by Romans and Macedonians and Dorians and, and people that descended from the Israelites. So we have the same situation, the tents of Shem, Jepeth dwelling in the tents of Shem. And the Shemites came to dominate those areas through the children of Israel, even though the Lydians were also Semites and the Persians. So, so we have in Acts chapter 9, 15, All of the modern translations. And this is the very commission of Paul of Tarsus. This is his original commission after his awakening on the road to Damascus. And the man who takes him in and takes care of him and helps him come to that awakening is ananias a christian who was dwelling at damascus and paul has his vision and he ends up in the house of this ananias and this ananias is basically acts as a prophet and yahweh speaks to ananias and ananias gives paul his mission which he spent the next 30 years i'm sorry the next maybe 26 years fulfilling and in acts chapter 9 chapter 15 there's a verse that's commonly mistranslated where all of the major virgins do their best to separate the children of israel from the terms for nations or gentiles and kings but the greek and and I go to great length to explain this in my commentary on Acts chapter 9. The Greek leads me to read Acts 9.15, that Paul's commission, the prince said unto him, or the Lord said unto him, go, speaking to Ananias, for he, speaking about Paul, right? Right? for he is a vessel chosen by me, who is to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. And I go to great length to prove, to explain that the Greek proves that. The King James and all other versions attempt to distinguish nations and kings and the sons of Israel in their interpretations. But I've shown, that in the Greek language of the phrase is the proof that our reading is correct and that the nations and kings and the sons of Israel are one and the same. And that's because when you look at the grammatical construction of the Greek, the phrase is a hendiatrisin, which is one by means of three. And, and that's a longer form of a Greek grammatical construction called a hendiatis, which is one by means of two, where the items that are joined by conjunctions coalesce or represent the same entity. And this is explained in Greek grammars, but it's ignored here because it doesn't agree with church doctrine. And and this is actually only one example of blatant mistranslations, especially in the letters of Paul, which support universalism, while the scripture itself does not support universalism. Paul's commission was to be a chosen vessel to bear the name of Christ before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. And Paul explains in Romans chapter 4 that those nations to whom the promises are certain are the nations which came from Abraham's seed. As the promise was spoken, thus thy seed shall be. And the Catholic churches and all the other churches now actually take the meaning of that and they reverse it. They create a lie, a huge lie, by reversing the meaning. And they teach that many nations became Abraham's seed. But that's not what the scripture says in Hebrew or in Greek. It says that Abraham's seed would become many nations. And there's all sorts of other promises in Genesis which corroborate that. But the proof of what I'm saying about Acts chapter 9 verse 15 is found in Acts chapter 26 Verses 6 and 7, where Paul says that now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Unto which promise our 12 tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. So, Paul says that his work is being done to fulfill that hope of the 12 tribes. Tribes And nobody else. Those same nations that Paul explained in Romans chapter 4 had descended from Abraham. That Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 were Israel according to the flesh. Israel after the flesh. A little past the point where Paul had explained to the Corinthians that their ancestors were in the Exodus. Paul made a statement, and it's sort of interrupted by a parenthetical remark. And he says, and I'm going to skip the parenthetical remark. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18, Behold, Israel after the flesh. That means Israel according to the flesh, the real children of Israel. Behold Israel after the flesh are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar. And then he makes a, a a parenthetical remark about idols and sacrifices. But then he says in verse 20, but I say that the things which the gentiles that word means nations, the things which the nations sacrifice. That's who he means. By where he says Israel according to the flesh or Israel after the flesh. He's talking about these same nations that are making sacrifices at the altar. They're not making sacrifices at the altar in Judea. The Jews are doing that. Behold, Israel according to the flesh or Israel after the flesh are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar. Then in verse 20, after the parenthetical remark, but I say that the things which the nation sacrifice, they sacrifice to devil and not to devils and not to God. He's referring to Israel according to the flesh, the nations which sacrifice to devils and not to God. They are the nations deported from ancient Israel in early times or colonizing Europe in early times, who were pagans. They weren't practicing Israelitism. They weren't practicing Hebrewism or the ancient religion of their Israelite ancestors. They were practicing paganism, sacrificing to devils and not to God. Israel according to the flesh. This is so clear in the epistles of Paul. This is... Yeah, and... uh, Sorry. (laughs) This is the entire purpose of those epistles to go to those nations and kings of the sons of israel for the hope of the 12 tribes of israel that's the entire purpose of paul's epistles and the churches obfuscated or they ignore it or they don't want to hear it they just refer to one or two places where it says all men and they take that totally out of context because Paul is not talking about all of anybody else but Israel and the wider Adamic race.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's just context, right? I mean, if um, you know, you've know got like a work meeting and um, uh, your boss just says everybody's going to get a pension and then somebody just walks in like some Chinaman and says, where's my pension? You're going to go, what the hell? This is only for people who work here. And, and in the same what I mean is Paul's only speaking to the Israelites. So he can say all men in that context, Absolutely. all Israelites who he's referring to, right? It, you can't just walk, someone can't just walk in and go, I'll, I'll have some of that as well. Absolutely.
0: And that's why 30 years after the crucifixion, it it was actually probably 28 or 29 years after the crucifixion, Paul stood before... Herod Agrippa II, and said that his mission was for those 12 tribes and the promises God made to the Father, period. You cannot force Paul to contradict himself. You can't interpret anything that Christ said in order to make him contradict himself when he said, I have come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, you cannot force Paul to contradict himself, where he said that his hope is for the 12 tribes of Israel, that his mission was to reconcile or redeem or, or announce the redemption of the 12 tribes of Israel. You can't make Paul contradict himself in some interpretation of one verse from some other epistle in Chapters two or three or four where, where where he just mentions all men in a different context or, or within that context, you can't make them contradict themselves,
1: so. yeah, and as you said, um with the Abrahamic covenant, the whole point was he would take one man and his wife, take them out of the pagan world, and create many nations from that one man's seed and and as you said, they do the complete opposite that Everybody just believes something and suddenly you're the seed of Abraham. Well, what was even the point of bringing Abraham out? Why why even bother? I mean, the whole thing doesn't make sense.
0: Absolutely not. Why would any of that language even exist in the New Testament if God changed his mind?
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, it started, as you said, with this, uh, you know, Sparta or the Corinthians and then the Macedonians and the Romans they, they were the start of, like, the great nations that would come from Abraham's seed. And then, then we see all these European nations. And, you know, there's also further prophecies of kings and rulers that would come from Abraham's lines. And that's all this royalty and nobility that we saw in Europe, all these descendants of Judah ruling over the other 12 tribes, right?
0: Right, absolutely. If, if you look at the ancient Greek histories, the Trojans... Uh... It, it's, it can be established that, in Scripture, that Darna and Kalkal were of the tribe of Judah. And they established those colonies at Pamphylia and in the Troad. And the Trojans and many of the Pamphylians came from them. But later on, we had the Phoenician settlers. And the Phoenicians settled in Pamphylia, and also in Cilicia and also in Caria. And the Carians and Lalegas and Callicians all came from the Phoenicians. And if you read the Greek classics, and I cite this somewhere in my writing, I don't remember exactly where, but if you read the Greek classics, you will learn that the Carrians and the Calicians had taken their princes, their kings. They took their kings. From the princes of the Trojans. In the ancient world, among the Greeks, the Trojans were recognized as legitimate royalty.
1: King of kings, isn't that what you said in your paper?
0: Um, I, I don't remember exactly how I expressed it, but the Trojans were the kings of kings, yes. That their sons had, had become the legitimate nobility. Of the other Phoenician settlements in Anatolia. Because those Phoenicians were also Israelites. So they would have recognized the Trojans as being of Judah in ancient times. So they naturally, according to the traditions and customs and laws of Israel, would have taken their kings from them.
1: Yeah, they would have to accept that, right? If if all he had to do is prove that he came from Zara and from Judah. And how can any Phoenician uh, challenge that? If they really are Israelite, they have to acknowledge, yes, you have the birthright from Yahweh. You have to be a king. We need a king from that bloodline. It's it's by our law, their own laws. They have to.
0: Well, well I mean, if that's what the law of Yahweh says, if that's what the prophecy of Jacob says in Genesis 49, Genesis chapter 49, that the scepter will be with Judah. Then the other Israelite tribes must have had that instilled in them, that naturally Judah should rule over them.
1: Do you have um, any theories what happened with Zara and Pharez? I've seen some really wild theories, but how Zara seems to have gotten, you know, the the red cord, the birthright, and then later on it ends up that um, David comes from Pharez. So. You know, some people say that there was an argument, and that, um, Fares, the line of Pharaohs claimed, Well, we was born first. And Zara said, No, our hand came out first. And in the end, ran, um, you know, won out. And then the <laughs> descendants of Zara refused to accept that. So they went to Greece and became their own kings.
0: Well, well right. But it's very clear that not all of the people of Zara had yeah. departed from the body of Israelites. There are always people of Zara and descendants of Zara throughout the kingdom period in Palestine, but it's natural that there's a natural rivalry between brothers. And if, I mean, we've experienced this all throughout European history, contentions for the thrones, um, disputes into who was in the line of succession next. It, it's natural. And, that would have naturally divided many of the Zarahites, and perhaps that was part of the motivation for them going and forming their own their own colonies overseas.
1: Yeah, but, but it'd just be speculation, or it just happened. And um, you know, you can imagine that if Yahweh wanted colonies in Greece, which evidently he did, that's why he made Judah have twins. To he he knows our behavior and how we will act. And that's why he, had, he made Judah have twins, right? So one's descendants would go set up these colonies.
0: Well, right. And, and I do incline, I can't prove it, so I don't teach it as a doctrine. I don't even teach it as, as a facet of history, but I can repeat it. The, the entire, the, the true story behind the red hand may very well come from Sarah Judah. I can't deny it, but I wouldn't teach it as doctrine or history. But the possibility is open that that very likely is the source for the original um red hand of ulster and and other places in in Britain,
1: and you also have the red lions everywhere I mean lions are obviously yellow, but where did that come from what Why are they just it's not like that predominant, but every now and then you see this red lion in the in the kings of Europe in their heraldry, and you wonder. Is, is that related to that? You can't prove it, but it's just interesting.
0: Right. And and I don't, um, some Christian identity, Christian Israel interpreters, they make way too much of heraldry. They go way too far with it. And I'm very skeptical of all of that. But it is true that all of our heraldry has always been related to biblical topics and subjects, that there have never been lions as we know them in, in um, Germany and in England within the time frame of our own history. So why have they always used this biblical, these biblical symbols for their heraldry? And it, it's just the very fact that they have such heraldry. Helps establish that that their origination is in those people from the Bible. But I don't go so far as to read into the symbols so much that tribes can be identified and things like that. And and that's because a lot of that heraldry did appear rather late in history after those tribes had long been dispersed and mingled with other tribes. Like the we can't imagine that there's only Judahites in Germany, that's crazy. There's probably people from all 12 tribes scattered throughout Germany. Even if Germany seems to fulfill some prophecies that are mostly related to Judah, which we could talk about perhaps as we get later on in in these 100 proofs. But the fact that they had heraldry is a major indication. And the fact that most of the heraldry is rooted in scripture is a major indication that they are the descendants of these ancient Israelites. I I would admit that.
1: Yeah. And then obviously the the prophecy to Abraham that his seed would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the grains in the sand. That's obviously all these European people, these millions, perhaps even hundreds of millions or a billion. You know, who knows how many uh, Israelites there were in history but but it certainly is there, the, the whites fulfill it today
0: well well right, and and that 's going to lead me back to something I wanted to get to a little earlier and got away from me. Um, the promise to Abraham that his seed would be many nations. the promises went on to Jacob, and Jacob um, passed them on to his twelve sons, and the children of Israel began to be referred to the different tribes as nations in Deuteronomy chapter 32, in the Song of Moses, even before they really became um, separate distinct nations. So when these promises were made to Abraham and to Jacob, there may have been scattered Jepethite tribes throughout various portions of Europe, especially uh, along the major rivers and, and around the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, that the um the Danube River Valley, that there were scattered Thracians and Ionians and, and Phrygians or perhaps even Persians and Assyrians who, who wandered Medes, who who were wandered and made colonies throughout southern Europe and, and parts of the Danube River Valley. And and there's evidence of that um, ancient corded ware cultures and things like that. And that's fine. But just because we had predecessors in the areas we ultimately inhabited does not mean that those predecessors are our ancestors. And the historic record that we have from classical history does show the proof in, in voluminous ways of our migrations from palestine and mesopotamia so we had predecessors in europe in diverse places but that doesn't mean that those predecessors are our ancestors when those promises were made to abraham isaac and jacob there were no germans there were no poles there were no Czechs, there were no franks there was no france there was no English. There was no England. There were no Irish. There was no Ireland. There was no um, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Switzerland, Holland. That these places, Netherlands, these places did not exist. These peoples from which these modern nations developed were not yet there in these places. There wasn't even in Italy. There were no Dorian Greeks. There were no Phoenicians in North Africa, or the Isles of the West, or or the coastlands of Western Europe. They weren't there. None of them were there. There were no Romans when the promises came to Abraham. They all appeared and developed civilization after the establishment of the Israelites. That's not a coincidence that that's when history began. It's not a coincidence that all of the Greek records, all of the ancient Greek myths show that, that the harbingers of Greek civilization, writing, letters, culture, all came from Phoenicia or Egypt. That's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that German nations started to spring into existence after the Sakae, Scythians, Chimer, Chimerians. Migrated from Asia. That's not a coincidence. Where was German civilization before that? It was nowhere. There wasn't one. There was none. History proves Christian identity again and again and again. And I know we fell short of one point and, and that we wanted to make today. That was a discussion of the ancient art, the depictions, some of the um, early language I want to talk about. And we'll have to pick up with that next. In in our next presentation.
1: Yep, no problem. Uh, Yeah, Jesus was white uh, and everything shows that he was and that he was his race that he was born into. He chose to come down. uh, Must have also been white, right?
0: And we'll start there next week.
1: Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Thanks for having me again, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, our European race. Thank you.
0: Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, everyone. And good night.